Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Dale Cockrell to discuss the 19th century New York underworld of prostitution and dancing that saw the evolution of American music from minstrelsy to ragtime. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Dale Cockrell, the author of Everybody's Doing It, Sex, Music, and Dance in New York, 1840 to 1917. Dale, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nate. Delighted to be here. Cool. And so I really enjoyed this book. It filled in, I mean, the 19th century obviously is before the vast majority of the 19th century is before recording technology was introduced. So we're kind of flying deaf here. We, we can't hear the actual artists we're going to be discussing. And a lot of times we don't even really have much written record of um, the artists we're going to be discussing. And so tell us a little bit about how did you learn about this era? and What were your sources? Well, um, I did a book on blackface minstrelsy oh, about 25 years ago or so, and it was the early period. I was dealing with the 1830s and the 1840s, um, and I was interested in where this stuff came from, and the title of the book includes And Their World, so it was a social context as well. Uh, and that led me to realize that uh, blackface minstrelsy in its very early phases was music that was coming out of bars and taverns in New York City, and uh, particularly in New York City in the 1830s and 40s. The people were dancing to this music, and in a real world, real way, uh, blackface minstrelsy, the music of blackface minstrelsy in its early period was just taking stuff out of the bars and the taverns and putting it up on stage. And 
letting people charge admission to come see what they were enjoying already. So that got me kicked on the subject at first, although I was writing that book. Um, I, I knew enough about early jazz in the 19-teens to know that it also came out of a similar context, um, coming out of New Orleans, coming out of the brothels in New, New Orleans. And so I wondered kind of casually, um, gee, is, is there any connection between where this music for Blackface Minstrelsy, which is, provides the, a baseline for many of the most popular musics of the whole of the 19th century, and jazz, which provides a baseline for much of the popular music of the 20th century, seeming to come out of the same place. Is there any way to connect these two, or is there a connection at all? And I, that was always in the back of my mind for decades, really, before um, I finally thought, well, it's time to really look at this in more detail and see if there's anything there. So that's the long story, actually, of how the book came about. I see. And, and you talk about, you say that your people, I mean, in the subjects of the book, tended to live below the horizon of record mm -hmm. and that you had had to rely on the words of literate middle class witnesses who condescended to those beneath their place. How did you filter that? Like the, the people that are writing this history down were not necessarily sympathetic to the musicians and the sex workers that um, provide that that are the world that you're trying to describe. How did you kind of normalize for that? Well, it's a great question. Um, of course, if you read what those middle class reporters and uh, authors will write about it, you'll find out that they think it's just absolutely disgusting stuff. That the music's nothing but noise. That the people are beneath contempt. And on and on and on. I mean, it's just a pile of that kind of stuff. But what I learned, even with blackface minstrelsy, I used a technique I call reading backwards. So if 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 they're saying that that this stuff is awful, that these people are terrible, that the music is noise, and you can't walk down the street without hearing it everywhere, and you read that backwards, you go, huh. Some people down there are having a pretty good time, and it must matter to them. Otherwise, they wouldn't continue to make this noise, and they wouldn't continue to act so terribly as obviously the middle-class reporters think they're acting. So once you kind of turn your mind backwards and look at it, you go, wow, there's probably something going on here of real interest. So uh, I try to look through, look take this stuff and stick it in the mirror and read it backwards as often as I can just to get more at the substance of what it's really about. And you've got another quote in the preface that I want you to elaborate on a little bit. <laughs> um, you said that this book is a project to understand more about how an American music born in despondency can sing so loudly of hope. Well, the nice thing about music is that it's free. Um, uh, unlike the arts, you're setting vibrations in the air. You can't eat it. You can't do anything with it except enjoy it. Well, if you're a professional, I guess you can sell it there. But music has the capacity, I think, to bring bring a joy that speaks of the hope that that people have. That's how they want to feel. Um, and if you if you give music that virtue, 
of being able to express how people want to be, how people want to live, how people want to be happy, um, then you've got a powerful tool. You've got something you can look at and go, well, this stuff really matters. And it's so freely made and so freely enjoyed, it must matter even doubly. So that's the reason I treat it as something valuable and something to be looked at. And one thing I found that was interesting, because I'd, I'd read your previous book, Demons of Disorder, yeah. uh, Early Black-Faced Minstrels in Their World, which I thought was fascinating and excellent. I'd love to have you back to talk about that another time. But at first I was confused, because this book, you talk about black-faced minstrelsy early on, but there's really no blackface in the bulk of the book, even though black-faced minstrelsy was the dominant popular music form for most of the 19th century. And then I realized you're doing what some of my histories of DJs are doing in the 20th century. You're focusing on the dancers. And minstrelsy had stopped being the music of these dance clubs by the early 1840s and had moved on to the, quote, legitimate stage. So who who is dancing to this music? And <laughs> and, and, and tell us about the, the characters that were created in this book. Thank you. You're absolutely right. Blackface minstrelsy in the 1840s moves up on the stage. And, you know, historiography has typically wanted to look at the stage and say, that's the music that's going on. Or they'll look in the parlor and say that that's where the music's going on. But, of course, people are dancing. We know that. People are dancing out there. But we don't seem to realize that if they're dancing, there's a musician over in the corner making the music that's getting them out dancing. So that was the realization that, oh, if there's a lot of dancing going on in the 19th century, which obviously there was, then there are a lot of musicians making music that are getting people dancing. And the dancers are also telling the musicians how to make music, too. So the question then was, well, where are they dancing? And that led me into the back rooms of the saloons and into the dance halls and into the bars and so forth, where the underclass was having a great time getting out dancing out there. And that also led me you know, to the second, uh, to, the, to another word in the title of the book, and that is where people are dancing to music, there's the whiff of sex is almost always in the air. Um, my wife and I now have a joke anytime we're watching a video or something and people get up and start dancing. We say, well, the sex is coming next. And sure enough, that seems to be the case often. So that's how the three got conflated in that point. I see. That makes perfect sense. And let's hear our first song. This is uh, something from the later part of the 19th century, The Golden Wedding. This is written by James Bland. And this performance is by um, Dick Hyman, Danny Barker, Max Morath and Clifford Jackson. Such dancing and such trading and such yellow gals so fair. All the high-toned colored people that resides for miles around have received an invitation and they surely will come down. All the darkies will be there. Don't forget to curl your hair. Bring along your damsel fair for some we will be treading. Won't we have a That was James Bland's D Golden Wedding, performed by Danny Barker, Max Morath, Clifford Jackson, and Dick Hyman. And I forgot to put in a trigger warning. I'll put that at the top of the show. <laughs> Racist terminology and, and, and the song language um, and, the, and the words of the song. But, and it's classified as, 
And again, I got to do a trigger warning as a coon song, which is what this genre of music was called. But it's not quite as straightforwardly racist as it appears. If you could address kind of the racial politics of this music in the period, and what was the kind of mix of people in these scenes that you're talking about? It's not a segregated scene. No, it's 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 complicated. I, I used to teach a course in blackface minstrelsy, and the conclusion of the course is always, well, it's complicated. And James Bland, for an ex- example, is is an African-American, was a black man in the 19th century. And um, so he's writing to Golden Wedding. Uh, and But to James Bland, the only way that he could make his, make his own way in the American entertainment business after, after the Civil War was, was through blackface minstrelsy. So it, it was just expected that African-Americans acted like Blackface minstrels did on the stage. So, so James Bland writes music. He becomes a blackface minstrel, putting on blackface over his natural skin and getting up on stage and, and often in a way starting to subvert the whole genre. Um, and by the end of the 19th century, we've started to recognize, uh, uh, many white Americans have started to recognize that African-Americans um, have uh, an incredible commitment to music making, James Bland being one of those. So um, so the, the scales are, are very slowly falling off the eyes of white Americans at this time about, about what African-Americans can add to, uh, to American culture, to American popular music. James Bland's one of those. But as I say, man, we'd have to go into a, a three-hour session to get through blackface minstrelsy because it's extremely complicated. And I'm not wanting to say that racism is not at the heart of it, because it is. But um, it's still a complicated genre. Yeah, absolutely. And the other complicated thing we have to, we have to get out of the way before we can dive into the book is prostitution. Yeah. Because um, this... Yeah. This dance scene is totally intertwined with the the sex business in New York in this period, and it was a massively, you say, in a highly developed urban industry throughout the U.S. from the Jacksonian era to World War One. You call prostitution demeaning work that for many women was their last best hope. But then there's this other quote that says, by understanding some of what the women were up against, it became possible to understand more of why the musicians and dancers expressed what they did. Women who hated what they felt compelled to do, or you found many records of women who hated what they felt compelled to do, but none who hated the music they heard, nor any who professed to dislike it. So, um, and then you wrap with the attraction and power of music and dance that joined oppressed people together into a single mind. Talk about that a little bit and, and the relationship of sex workers and, and this music and the different intersectionalities of, of oppression that are going on. Wow, that's a big question. Um, where do I start with that one? Uh, let me back up just a little bit and talk talk about the business of prostitution. Uh, it was a surprise to me, actually. I didn't know about this, his, this, the endemic quality of prostitution in the United States in the 19th century. I read Tim Guilfoyle's wonderful book um, on the city of Eros on prostitution in New York, and it was a real eye-opener. Um, 
just to give you one quote, which I love, Walt Whitman said that 19 out of 20 uh, males in New York City avail themselves regularly of prostitution. He kind of gives some qualifications in there. And then he goes on to say, it's not possible to imagine having any fun without prostitution being around. So 19 out of 20, that's surely an exaggeration. But um, but there were studies that said, uh, you know, only 50% of New York males avail themselves regularly of prostitution. And they were proud of the only business in there. So where is this going on? And it's going on in the thousands and thousands of of taverns, of uh, saloons, which have back rooms, which is for music making, where men and women can can join together and um, in dance and in conversation and eventually in sex. But my point about um, it is, it, it, I mean, this. This is sad business, and I, I think at some point in the book I go, what the hell am I doing writing about stuff that's obviously so demeaning to the, to American women? And and that was always kind of in the back of my mind going, good God, this is just awful stuff. Even the dedication to the book tries to write some of that. But um, at the same time, as demeaning as it was, and there are some statistics in, in which uh, they ask, well, why are you doing this? And um, many of them say, well, you know, I've got a kid. And I, I need a job. And it's the only way I know how to make money. And some of them say, well, I really like dancing. And um, I, I did find as I went through that that part of the routine seems always to be enjoyed by everybody. Um, now, the second part of the routine, maybe not so much enjoyed by anybody, everybody, but through dancing together, um, people express through their bodies. I mean, you've had the experience, all of us have had the experience of, of experiencing joy. That's why we dance, isn't it? To find the joy in bodily movement and moving to moving to music. So I needed to keep that in focus too, that at that moment, people are seeking out the best or one of the best things it is to be human. Um, and that kind of kept me motivated as I worked my way through some of the times that it could be really depressing about it. I'm not sure that answered your question, which had a bunch of uh, sub causes. In there. <laughs> I, I'm satisfied with it. I think it conveys to the listener what we're getting at, that, that we're not endorsing the semi or exploitative side or the racist or no. the classist side of what went on, but we're trying to understand the history. And what we're finding is that there is sort of a silver lining of joy, and that's in the dancing and the music that these people shared together. And and that's what we're um, trying to to unearth. It's it's very buried in history, but we're we're sort of you're you're dusting the the you know the dirt aside and looking for the dinosaur bones under there and and what we can what we can get out. But let's cue our next song. This is a song called "The Bowery." This is an unknown singer I found on YouTube doing a version of this song. The Bowery. The night that I struck New York, I went out for a quiet walk. Folks who are on to the city say, better by far that I took Broadway. But I was out to 
enjoy the sights. There was the Bowery ablaze with lights. I had one of the devil's own nights. I'll never go there anymore. The Bowery, the Bowery. They say such things and they do strange things on the Bowery. And that was a 19th century song called The Bowery, recorded by an unknown singer for YouTube. And that was a novelty song about a sort of hick or green tourist who finds his way down to the Bowery. Tell us a little bit about the Bowery and the geography of New York at this point in time. What were the neighborhoods that people were having these kind of parties in? Well, it's the Lower East Side, uh, primarily. I mean, that's the entry point of immigrants, and it was also the uh, by far the most poverty-stricken part of New York at the time. And the Bowery ran right through that. Um, converged in in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s in an area called called Five Points, um, which was really the lowest of the low point there. But to write a song about the Bowery in the 19th century, immediately people would know that you're talking about going into the worst part of New York, but a place in which uh, the Bowery and all the streets that lead off of the Bowery are filled with saloons, dance halls, music making coming out of the cellars. If you know anything about New York architecture in the 19th and 20th century, you know that many of the apartment buildings feature a kind of half-level cellar, uh, cellar under, the, uh, under the street there, and then people live from there on up. Well, that cellar underneath was always where the partying was going on. There would be bars there. They became dance halls. Um, small dance halls, but they were endemic and they numbered in the thousands during this time. So when the hick wanders into New York at the time, he heads over for a to a dive, uh, which I think is also mentioned in the song. He dives into the dive underneath the cell in the cellar there and runs into all kinds of trouble because he doesn't understand the underbelly of New York life at the at, at that time. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot to learn. I mean, th th this is treacherous territory where, um, you know, there's no Food and Drug Administration. People can serve whatever kind of turpentine or, you know, watered-down uh, liquor, poisonous concoctions that, that they want to serve. Mm -hmm. uh, the bar stayed open all night. There's very little sanitation. Um, and, you know, because of the lack of recorded music and the fact that these people were basically considered beneath contempt and, and only kind of come into the written record through legal cases. And then there's these sort of proto-tabloids that are going on. And, and you've got a term you call agents of Asmodeus. And there's people that are writing about this stuff, some of whom ostensibly are trying to purify the city and, and, and bring it into these exploitative sex industries. And others are pointing out hypocrisy, but at the same time, they'll have guides to the best brothels in yeah. their magazines. Tell us about these figures and this sort of, you know, hypocrisy is the tribute, virtue pays the vice sort of attitudes um, that, that's going on that allowed you to document or to research this topic. Well, it's, um, it's a phenomenon that starts with the Jacksonian era. I mean, to the, uh, through the 1820s, in the United States, newspaper and public media really was concerned with politics, often of another place. But with the rise of Jacksonian America, there became a, a interest in, in 
and society and culture that wasn't necessarily of highbrow politics. It was in the 1830s in New York that a character, a, a minister actually comes in and he goes, good God, look at all the prostitution around and he starts a movement to identify it. And you mentioned hypocrisy, that's a word that's right at the heart of it. He puts together a huge collection of what we would call pornographic materials today. And people were selling prints, they were selling uh, animated figures doing, you can imagine. Um, and he put all this together and he invited 300 clergy to come see it as the manifestation of how awful New York was. Well, the clergy came in and went, ooh, this is kind of interesting. And then they went, no, 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 this is beneath contempt to even. Uh, so uh, he was actually defrocked, and, but he set in motion a movement to identify what the underbelly of New York was doing and thus provided me some kind of sources. Um, and by the 1840s, there are things called the, the Flash Press. Um, George Washington Dixon, a, a seminal figure in the history of blackface minstrelsy, is right at the heart of it. So the, the Flash Press, just as you mentioned, go, oh, this is awful what's going on down here, and you should never, ever go to this brothel because the women are beguiling there, and you'll get into trouble, and the address happens to be this, and this is how you get in. <laughs> so so their, their newspapers, so-called, are filled with that kind of information. Well, it really becomes a phenomenon that's still with us, the National Enquirer, you know, where uh, and the National Enquirer is a direct line back to this. I, I bring in Asmodeus because he becomes a a figure in the 1840s and 50s that pops up in a lot of places. Asmodeus was nominally um, a demon who could reveal um, the underbelly of culture. And he did this by having the power, figuratively, to peel the roofs off of houses and peer inside. And you could see what people were really doing in that. Well, you can imagine that was titillating beyond belief. So... Asmodeus becomes a, a name that crops up anytime you want to peel the roofs off of the tenement buildings and see what's actually going on down there. But again, it's just symptomatic of a culture now that becomes interested in the deranged life of the underclass. And that in turn starts to provide me with source materials to start to get at what this life was really like down there. So I, I'm eternally grateful to the disciples of Asmodeus because they gave me some good stuff to start working on. Asmodeus goes somewhat out of fashion yeah. by the 1860s, but, but the phenomenon continues. Yeah, and George Washington Dixon is truly a fascinating character. I'd, I'd read about him before. Obviously, he's the popularized the song Zip Coon, which was kind of the second of the big minstrel songs, Jim Crow, by mm -hmm. Thomas Rice was the first. But to me, it's kind of fascinating the way that it very quickly moves from this proto-minstrel scene. You know, that that stuff, the Virginia minstrels take that to the, the quote-unquote legitimate concert stage in the middle-class white audiences. But the music and the dancing in New York, the scene that spawned minstrelsy, changes. And people like Juba, who's documented by Charles Dickens, of all people, who goes down into the five 
um, the five points. And people who've seen Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York might have mm-hmm. uh, some idea of, of this world we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about going underground into these tunnels, no natural light, torchlight, candlelight, and uh, a, a real outcast underclass. You've got you've got African Americans, you've got Irish people who've just arrived, mixing and mingling in a way that the middle class white people are are, are appalled by. Mm-hmm. But these you know, figures like Juba, who's an African-American, but known as the best dancer, one of the best dancers in New York. They also, you also talk about Jack Balliger, who's a black virtuoso fig, uh, mm-hmm. fiddler. And I should mention Juba's real name was William Henry Lane, that, um, you know, they might even perform in blackface themselves. But something different to me, it, it feels like something different is beginning to take shape in this period. Talk about this sort of evolution. Like, how do we get from minstrelsy through ragtime to jazz in this 70-something year period? Well, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I completely agree that what Juba is doing on in five points in the 1840s is much different than what was going on in New York in the underbelly in the 1820s. I think it's all part of the same. Um, it is pretty clear that it was. Yeah, I was just trying to contrast it with what the Virginia minstrels and then Christie yeah. minstrels and others were doing on the middle class stages. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that is quite different. Um, well, it, you know, the connection between what Juba is doing in Five Points and what's going on in Storyville and in New Orleans in the nineteen in the nineteen teens um, goes directly through the the back rooms of the saloons and the dance halls. Um, uh, both both of those places, the history of jazz in Storyville and also Juba in Five Points, are it's taking place in in saloons. It's taking place in brothels. It's taking place in dance halls. And so we've got this enormous explosion in the 1870s of prostitution. It's I mean, if you want to be ironic, you call it the golden age of American prostitution. Some people have done that. So really, it's a bell curve uh, between the 1830s and the 1840s. It's fairly much under control. And Storyville, of course, gets shut down in 1917, and the culture changes completely. It's this forgotten period in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s that's the huge gener- the huge generation that lays the foundation for this energetic dance-based music that is the basis of American popular music in the 20th and the 21st century. I, mean, I think that's the important thing here I'm trying to get at in my book, is that this music is necessarily about moving bodies. And if you can move them as hot and fast as you can, the tips will flow. The business of the house will be better for the women as well as for the musicians. So let's generate a music that's going to get people up bouncing around, having a good old time, swinging each other around. And then we can start to understand where this music that we love in 1954 comes from. So that's really kind of the heart of what the book is about. All right, let's take a quick sponsor break, and when we return, we'll talk about the different um, formats of dance halls and concert gardens in New York in the 19th century. And one thing you do in the book is you track the 
evolution of the venues where these people met and danced together and and the way it evolved from sort of the proto-theatrical um, venues of the 1820s, 30s, 40s, this would be a period of time in the low class, lower classes felt free to get on the stage. And it's a very much more interactive, more like folk theater from, from Europe. But over the course of the century, it evolves in things like, explain the difference between a concert saloon and a pleasure garden and a dance hall. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, there, uh, just a little bit of preliminary and then I'll get to that. I mean, wh when many people think about prostitution, they think brothels. And um, and in the 1830s and the 1840s, that may have been true. But mostly in the history of American prostitution, brothels are relatively unimportant to the point that in the early 20th century, they almost ceased to exist. Um, so brothels are, are prostitution is going to move into places like the concert saloon, to some degree, the pleasure gardens, the dance halls, uh, the dives and so forth. But you ask for a difference between pleasure gardens and concert saloons. Pleasure gardens have a long history in Anglo-American um, musical traditions. They go back to London in the 17th century. Uh, Handel, for example, wrote a lot of music for London pleasure gardens. And as the name suggests, they're nice gardens, generally in the outskirts of the city where you can go and pay 25 cents or shillings or whatever you need to pay. You have beautiful grounds. You have something you can find to eat and drink. And in the middle of it will be a kiosk where Handel's latest pieces will be played and you can enjoy those. Uh, that concept was imported into the United States, imported into New York and, and formed an important part of basically middle-class appreciation uh, opportunity for for understanding music. The saloons, as the name suggests, and even kind of legally, really, a saloon was a place for people to gather and drink. Um, and, um, and it's only in the middle part of the 19th century that they start to realize, well, if we put on a little music here, Maybe we can get some more people in and they'll stay here longer and they'll even drink some more. And that's really the development. It's kind of melding together the notion of the middle class pleasure garden with the working class saloon. So we can get somebody in here playing the piano over in the corner, maybe a singer, maybe an instrumentalist. And we can call it a concert saloon. It sounds a little better than just saloon. And we can get people, maybe we can get a wider range of people, a larger audience, and maybe they'll stay longer and drink more and more. So it becomes a place to, for people to congregate. And actually, quickly, they learn that, oh, well, if we can have waitresses serving them, uh, we can add a degree of titillation to this concert saloon. And they come up with this wonderful name of the Pretty Waiter Girls. Uh, so the concert saloons are populated by pretty waiter girls who wear short skirts and who um, also have business in the house. And so you learn that if you're interested in that sort of thing and go to a concert saloon, engage a pretty waiter girl for some time after her shift. Um, so prostitution also starts to serve the concert saloons too. Dance halls. Um, as the name suggests, is, was pretty much a place where it was understood that people would go to dance. 
It's only later in the 19th century that dance halls and, and saloons get conflated. This is a bigger answer than you ever wanted to know, but I'll keep going here for a minute more. Yeah, keep going. This okay. Is uh, so uh, a saloon, as the name suggests, has got a bar, and it's a place for people to come in and drink. And typically in New York, the saloons were right on the street, so you'd walk in the front door, and typically only men could go in there, and they would drink. But if the saloon also had a back room to it, and that's the way the architecture of the building suggested, in the back room, there would be an entrance called the women's interest, and women could come into the back room, and they could drink in the back room, but they couldn't drink in the saloon. So a back room saloon meant that you could see some women, you could drink with some women, and I think it's kind of natural that there's going to be some music making there. You've got the concert saloons providing that paradigm. Um, that there's going to be some music there and there's going to be some dancing there. So the back rooms of the saloons become, by the end of the 19th century, probably the most important venue for, uh, for New York prostitution. There are thousands of these things. And there will be many women engaging those. And there's, by definition, music going on all the time. And uh, the interesting thing to me is if there are thousands of these things and you've got two musicians in each one of them, professional musicians, you've got many thousands of professional musicians developing a music to get bodies up and dancing ready for sex and good tips. So all at once, we've got a huge number of professional musicians who are laying the groundwork for American popular music. And tell us about two more categories of venues, the dive and the black and tan. Yeah. Well, the dive, the dive actually was a term that confused me for a while. I go back to George Washington Dixon. There's a wonderful um, a description of him with one of his um scurrilous buddies walking down the street and they dived into the cellar and again if you know much about the architecture and you know that the cellars are always kind of half underground it sort of makes sense to use that verb you dive down into the cellar um, but by the 1860s and the 1870s in new york it's become a noun that is the cellar is no longer called a cellar it's called a dive it starts popping up in newspapers all over the place, and often it'll be actually in ironic quotes so that people go, oh, I know what you're talking about. You've dived into the cellar there. So those cellars, which sometimes were saloons but often were dance halls, um, become also a primary venue for sex music and dance in New York. Um, so there's the dive. The dive segues pretty easily into the black and tans, which start up in the 1880s. Um, although in the dives at the time, uh, the, the clientele and the musicians would often be multiracial. There's lots of examples of this, of black musicians playing with white musicians, of, white women dancing with black men, uh, black women dancing with white men, and so on. Um, by the 1860s, it becomes almost a, a form of advertising to point out that, that here you can experience not only 
the underbelly of New York, but you can also experience the titillation of, of multiracial engagement. The black and tan is probably a term that refers to a sporting dog that's common in the 19th century, but the name also suggests colors and suggests uh, multiracial implications. Well, the black and tans, of course, have a long history in American popular music. It's not just from the 1840s, but um, but Duke Ellington writes the black and tan concerto, you know, in the in the was it the 1930s? I'm not sure of the date there. But yeah, it's early 30s, I think. Yeah. So it's it becomes part of the consciousness of uh, American music that that the most that an extremely vital, I want to say the most vital, but an extremely vital form of American musical expression is when black and white are together. Um, and Duke Ellington is paying homage to that. Stevenson in the 1840s, the proprietor of the original black and tan, is is also paying respect for that. And it continues throughout. This notion that that there's a white New York and there's a black New York may be true on the Upper West Side, but it's not true on the Lower East Side in the 19th century or well into the 20th it's only going to be by about 1920s that the segregation of the races is accomplished in New York, tragically. Yeah, and, and ironically, FDR's New Deal had a lot to do with uh, the segregation from the real estate. But let's hear our next song. This is an Irving Berlin song. This is an early recording by Arthur Collins and By Byron Holland Harlan. Everybody's doing it now. Going to your brain like a bottle of wine. Fine. Pun. 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 Take a chance. And that was Collins and Harlan, the famous recording duo of the 1910s, doing Irving Berlin's Everybody's Doing It Now. And that's a recording that's actually pretty contemporaneous with the song. And, and hopefully we'll get to Irving Berlin in a bit. But first, I want to hear you talk a little bit about the can-can, because this is an important uh, transitional dance. In the, uh, It's invented in Paris in the 1830s, but doesn't get to New York until 1868. Tell us a little bit about the can-can and how it differs from what we might have seen in a movie like Moulin Rouge or something. Yeah. Well, the can-can, when it comes to New York, is coming into this <laughs> exuberant, energetic, titillating dance culture. And um, uh, one of the nice features about the tan-tan, uh, the can-can, is that... Um, is that you kick your legs up as high as you possibly can. Now, we do know that in Moulin Rouge. But uh, I, I don't know how much I can talk about on air here, but... You um, can go for it. <laughs> imagine, out if you... imagine prostitutes advertising their wear, um, uh, and the dance of the can-can is a kind of perfect example of that. It's going on in dance halls. It's going on in balls and so forth. At this point, it's not the chorus line that we know in Moulin Rouge. It's people dancing. Um, it's people out on the floor having a good time. I mean, I, again, our image of what it is to dance in a 
in a dance environment today is actually quite a bit like what's going on in New York in the 1870s. People are getting down and boogieing. I mean, we know enough from the illustrations and so that there's not this stiff kind of waltz-like thing that Hollywood has given us that's about 19th century dancing. People are getting raunchy and down with it. So the can-can just came at a perfect time. It was a, a chance for the gals to kick as high as they can to uh, titillate their uh, um, the, the men in the room and uh, increase the business of the house. So, and it continues on. You know, it's wild and crazy music. So you can imagine how it fit quite nicely into the culture at the time. And around this time, you, we, we don't have a lot of descriptions about the music, but we do have a few. And we know that um, you've got a quote that um, somebody describes the music as red hot knitting needles spit out by the red faced yeah. trumpeter and the bass drummer beating a bulky mule. So we know that the drums and the trumpet are already coming into this music. And I remember just a couple decades earlier, the fiddle, the tambourine, the bones, oh. and I'm forgetting the four. Oh, and the banjo, of course, yeah. were this raucous, you know, straight out of the slave quarters kind of, of sound. But within a few decades, we're already adding drums and trumpet and kind of easing out some of those instruments. And then by the 1890s, you get ragtime hitting the scene. How did how did ragtime impact it? What kind of dances um, were going on to the to the new ragtime sounds that came from the Mississippi region or the you know, Mississippi River, Missouri area? Yeah, that that quote that you mentioned there. I mean, it still just blows my mind. I mean, the trumpeter kind of spitting out knitting needles, fiery needles. Sounds like jazz, doesn't it? Sounds like what Louis Armstrong is going to be doing in the 1920s and 30s. And here this is. This is a description from the 1850s and 60s. The drums we know were there because we start to get photographs from the 1860s and the 1870s. And the drums are over in the corner. There will be multiple drums. There will be trap sets being used. So, again, this notion that it's all sweet and pure music is obviously not what's going to be happening at all. Um, ragtime picks up on that. We've already got the instrumentation in place. We've got an accent on rhythms, as the drum makes manifest, and the tambourine did to some extent, too. Uh, the obvious thing about ragtime, though, is this... Um, exaggerated use of syncopation. Um, I, I think before when people, when at least white Americans were dancing before the cakewalk and so, there was a, a pretty strong emphasis on putting your foot, feet down on one and three of, of a 4-4 four, four measure. Ragtime comes along and all at once there's an accent on two and four. So that opens up a new dimension of ways that the body can express the music. Um, We've got the instruments in place that can start to give an oomph on two and four on the syncopated beat there. So it's a kind of natural illusion of what's available and a new conception of what music can be. And that leads almost immediately into a, a whole new realm of dancing that's called tough dancing. And tough dancing is a, a broad category that comes to include a lot of 
of dances that have other names. But uh, I had accounts from the 1890s and the early 19th century from uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you know, small towns of the girls wanting to go tough dancing, but they can't do it in Lancaster. Apparently, you have to go to New York to really tough dance. As the name suggests, it's tough. You let it go. You just let it hang out. And fortunately, um, a film was made in 1902, silent film, obviously, of about one minute of a couple tough dancing. And I found that thing, and, and I watched it, I encourage your listeners to, to go Library of Congress tough dancing and look at it. No, it's only a minute. But I looked at that thing, and what's going on? You've got two kind of people in rags, kind of waltzing out on stage with tough kind of demeanors. And there's music going on. Somebody on YouTube actually put ragtime to it, and it fits perfectly. That's obviously what they're listening to. And there's throws and things that we would call jitterbugging that's going on. There's hugging. The male sticks his hands in the female's butt at one point. She stops dancing, grabs her crotch at one point. And they kind of beat up on each other while they're dancing around. And it ends with her falling on the floor and him jumping on top of her. <laughs> and at that point, I go, I think I have a book here. <laughs> Indeed, and it's it's easily found on YouTube and, and definitely a must watch. But let's hear our last song. This is uh, My Gal Sal by the Mound City Blue Blowers. This is a song written by Paul Dresser. Was my gal Sal trouble, sorrow she'd bear And she was always willing to share A wild sort of devil But dead on the level was my good gal Sal My Gal Sal, performed by the Mound City Blue Blowers in the 1920s, was written in the 1880s, I want to say maybe a little later than that, by Paul Dresser, who's the brother of novelist Theodore Dreiser. Tell us a little bit about Paul Dresser, because he kind of reminds me of George Washington Dixon and is another one of these figures that plays on the sentiment. A lot of his songs are sad about women who come to the big city, but um, my gal sounds a little bit different than some of his other numbers. Yeah. yeah. If you know the music of Paul Dresser at all, you probably know on the banks of the Wabash. People in Indiana would tell you about that. He's from Indiana. He thought he would be a priest once upon a time, but he gave that up and apparently spent a lot of time in a, in a brothel in southern, um, southern Indiana um, enjoyed that life, made his way to New York. It was obvious that he had talent as a composer. Some people were already starting to compare him to Stephen Foster. And he wrote, just as you mentioned, quite a few sentimental songs. But he also wrote a lot of songs that can be read as representative, again, of, of the, um, the prostitution life in New York. You know, she came to the city. And she never returned. Well, why'd she come to the city and why'd she never return? Uh, there's a whole range of those. And my gal Sal 
Oh, and while he was in New York, not only did he enjoy the food, he was huge by the time of his death, about 350 pounds. But um, he was impecunious because he spent all his money on the women and on the prostitutes. So he's representative of these great American songwriters who know what this life is like. Paul Dresser just happens to be a little more honest than most of them and is actually writing music sometimes about them. My Gal Sal, which you just mentioned, um, is a reference to the to the brothel owner that he fell in love with down in southern Indiana. Um, her name was Sally. And um, he's kind of paying homage to this woman that on the one hand he loved, but was on the other hand the biggest madam in that part of Indiana at the time. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. There's a couple of characters that turn up towards the end of the book that – are just as comfortable in this Demimond world um, that we don't think of as figures of the underworld. And I'm talking about Irving Berlin and Sophie Tucker who make these uh, cameos. I mean, Berlin, like Dresser is a professional songwriter and, and some of the material being sung in these, in these dance halls is Tin Pan Alley song craft. Some of it is still folk songs, but they frequently, or they constantly feel free to improvise the lyrics and um, make them much more lively and fitting to the scene. And there's some dances I can't even name. The dry Kentucky F word (laughs) is a popular one. I wondered if you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You know, if I label this explicit, then Apple will leave us alone, hopefully. Um, We more likely get in trouble for discussing the racist aspects of the history than the sexual ones, but you never know with the blind idiot God of internet censorship. But I want to get to this one last conflict that you talk about in the book. There's a music coming out of France, cabaret music that hits New York a little bit before jazz. And to me, it's this fascinating battle of what's going to dominate 20th century American music. Is it going to be coming from Europe or is it going to be coming from African-Americans? Talk about this, this, mix of 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 cabaret music and ragtime and proto jazz and and why it was that jazz ultimately triumphed out of the mix well i'm not sure i can answer why jazz ultimately triumphed I and mean, that that's a question beyond the the book uh cabaret is interesting to me too if i were to ever write another book it would probably be on cabaret during this period but um cabaret comes just as you mentioned about 90 hits new york about 1912 it had been in France for some time before then. And something like the concerts or the development of the concert saloon, it it fit quite nicely into a niche uh, that was waiting to be filled. The nice thing about the cabaret and the demimonde in New York was that the cabaret had on the one hand always been kind of subversive. And on the other hand, it was... um, sexually provocative so there's a ready market for all of that what happens with the cabaret is that into the into the bars and the saloons and the back rooms if you could bring in some performers who that you could advertise as cabaret performers cabaret singers um then you were putting on a show and um, to put on a show is something more than the extemporized people playing the piano and dancing to it or the buskers coming in and providing some music in the back room there. 
So it enabled um, a development, an economic development in the back rooms, saloons, and dance halls that you didn't have before. So you've got professional musicians who may or may not be uh, of professional quality coming in and uh, providing a new angle for what's going on. And the women performers were almost always understood to be available for services after the show. So during this time, the uh, 1912, 13, 14, and so forth, New York does go cabaret mad. And we've got lots of accounts saying that it really is living off the back of the prostitution industry at the time. But it does provide another angle, and it provides um, an opportunity for the music that's coming out of Tin Pan Alley at the time, uh, because the songs that they're going to be singing are going to be Tin Pan Alley songs obviously parodied, obviously body parodies by the time it gets down into many of the cabarets, but such is the nature of many popular songs. What's on the sheet music is not what it ends up being. And the last thing I want to get to, and I didn't, I, we could have spent a whole uh, half hour on this this theme because it's a, it's a constant theme that runs through the book. You talked about John McDowell, the preacher that was early missionary in the 1830s that kind of tried to wave a red flag about this. But there's these characters like Anthony Comstock, who's kind of the king of the censors and a one-man vigilante force trying to regulate this stuff all through the 1800s. And then you have people like John D. Rockefeller and the Committee of 14 and, and things like the Mann Act, which is going to go on to bedevil Chuck Berry in the 1950s. Tell us about kind of how these people helped bring this era to an end. Um, yeah, the Mann Act, I mean, it's still going on because um, Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted on the Mann Act. So it's still with us very much. Um well, what happens is I'm just going to jump ahead and I'm going to deal with the 19th. The Committee of 14 is being funded by John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, the Muckety Mucks in New York, and they're really attempting to suppress uh, all kinds of um, corruption, prostitution in New York. It, it gets heated up about 1906. And the way they do it is that they hire a bunch of investigative detectives, ordinary people, and send them into the underbelly of New York, all over, thousands of places. And they report back to the executive secretary. He takes, draws it up, and he's got various ways that he can put pressure on them to kind of clean it up. And cleaning it up includes making sure that blacks and whites are now separated. And I think that's the most tragic thing that comes out of this, is that they eventually succeed. But for the course of my book, the Committee of 14, those reports have been saved. And they're in the New York Public Library. There's about 100,000 of those things. And the investigative reporters, when they go in there, call it what it is. They're not interested in mincing words if it's... Um, if it's the f bomb, that's what they um, that's what they write in their reports. And if there's music going on and people are dancing the grizzly bear, that's what they put in the reports. So it enabled me to spend two months in New York, actually getting the real nitty gritty of what's going on in these places. The end result of this is that a miscegenated culture that had been part of New York's life for so long gets split. By 1917, the Committee of 14 have ensured that if blacks and whites are going to be in the same restaurant, 
One's going to be on one floor and the other race is going to be on another floor. They're not going to be in the same places. It starts to explain why the Cotton Club and the Apollo Club of the 1920s and 30s have black performers and white audiences. That would not have been the case in 1910. The, the audiences would have been combined. So it's a kind of tragic and sad way for the book to end to see that that this American life that had been for oppressed people of whatever kind is no longer available to them because the muckety-mucks won. They got to write the history, and they wrote it so effectively that most of us have forgotten that it was ever different. And that, in a real way, is what I'm trying to do in the book, is to show that it once was different. There once was a hope for a real multiracial musical and dance culture and life in this country, but that um, John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan ensured we didn't have that. And fortunately, it comes back again in a few different ways in the 20th century. Yeah. And Del, um, I guess, been Del Cockrell. And thanks so much for for kind of restoring this history of mis mixed race American music in the 19th century because it's something that's totally overlooked. The book is Everybody's Doing It, Sex, Music, and Dance in New York from 1840 to 1917. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. On Thursday... Nate welcomes John Einerson to discuss 60s Sunset Strip star Arthur Lee and Love. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.